This is an AMI podcast. Hey, it's me, Lawrence Gunther, host of Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther, heard on AMI-audio. I love exploring the great outdoors with my guide dog, and I want you to be just as comfortable exploring your community and beyond. Check out my show for the latest outdoor accessibility tips, tech, and insights. Listen to Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther wherever you listen to great podcasts. I'm Juwita Gupta, and this is The Pulse. The benefits of a good diet are well recognized. Eat plenty of fresh vegetables, fruit, whole grains, and lean meats. Make sure you eat a balanced diet. The right amounts of carbohydrates, fats, proteins, vitamins, and minerals. With this overabundance of advice on what to eat and how much to eat, the equally critical question of who gets access to affordable and good quality food often gets drowned out. People with disabilities and other groups dealing with poverty and discrimination face unique challenges to accessing, preparing, and purchasing food. Many people with disabilities are, in fact, especially in need of a good quality diet, but are unable to afford it. Today, we discuss food security for people with mobility disabilities. It's time to put your finger on the pulse. Hello and welcome to The Pulse on AMI-audio. My name is Joita Gupta and I'm really pleased to be with you again today. As we talk every weekend on the program, I just wanted to take a minute to remind you that as we get into the sixth or seventh month of COVID-19 and lockdowns and restricted social gatherings, I hope that everyone is staying safe and staying well, but also staying connected with the people in your life. It could be friends, it could be family, but of course, you can always reach out to us as well. You're not alone as we all go through this pandemic together. I've really wanted to talk about the issue of food security for people with disabilities. I've had it in the sort of, I've had it on my mind for quite a long time, especially now during the pandemic, when we hear about empty store shelves and people struggling to uh, buy groceries and how expensive food has gotten. But even aside from that, we know that poverty and underemployment are significant issues in the disability community. Joining me to talk about her recent research into food insecurity for people with mobility disabilities is University of Toronto researcher Naomi Schwartz. Naomi Schwartz, welcome to The Pulse. It's great to have you on the program. Yes, thank you, Joita. Thank you for welcoming me. Hey, uh, it's, as I said, a very important conversation and one that I admit is long overdue. Um, Just before we get into talking about your research, can you explain to those of of us who may not understand the jargon, what do you mean by food security? So food insecurity uh, refers to a very specific condition. It's looking at um, ability to access food that's safe, nutritious, culturally appropriate um, for an active and safe and healthy life. Um, but it's mm-hmm. specifically referring to um, ability to access food because of uh, uh, for financial reasons. So food insecurity mm-hmm. is not being able to access food because you are unable to afford food. 
Um, so yes, what you mentioned about nutrition is so important, but, but one of the important things to note about food insecurity is that the health effects of food insecurity, uh, go beyond the effects of diet and nutrition research has shown, but also include mm-hmm. just those stress and frustrations and not being able to access your basic needs, um, uh, which has effects on mental health and, and just health in general. Mm-hmm. And we'll unpack your research over the course of this conversation. So let's just get things started here. Tell me a little bit about your research question. What kind of gaps in the data were you trying to address? Yes. Yeah, so the first gap I was looking to address, so we identified this very strong association in the literature between disability and food insecurity. Um, but what we firstly noticed is that most of this, uh, this research was conducted in the United States. Um, and there was very little in Canada showing this relationship. So obviously differences in geography and policies between the two countries might affect this relationship. So we wanted to see uh, and provide data um, on that information here. And, and some of the partner organizations, the disability organizations we worked with, wanted to, to see that data within Canada. Um, mm-hmm. And then importantly, you're looking kind of at the research on uh, looking at the reasons for this high rate of food insecurity among people with disabilities. And what we were seeing was a lot of the reasons described were very inadequate. A lot of this work looked at individual reasons that people with disabilities might have higher rates of food insecurity. So like mm-hmm. the fact that they had lower incomes or high, or potentially higher medical expenses, and also that they might have more difficulty reaching a food store. Um, so regarding the first two, the higher incomes and uh, or lower incomes, sorry, and higher medical expenses, uh, we firstly thought that was a very individualized way of looking at the problem without considering some of the upstream factors and policy environments mm-hmm. that might lead to these conditions. Um, and in terms of like the barriers in access and food because of a mobility disability, these experiences weren't really well described. And, and to consider disability or mobility disability as a barrier without considering the environments uh, that prevent people with mobility to, disabilities from accessing stores is a really big gap in the literature with, without considering those individual environmental barriers that people face. Let's just talk about income a minute longer, because for a lot of people with disabilities in Canada, they you know that underemployment is a problem. So many are on social assistance, which is provincially administered. I'm just wondering, is the province you live in associated with the degree of food insecurity you might experience on a daily basis? Yeah, so what we found when we did this analysis in Canada um, was that province, the province you lived in, uh, if you were somebody with mobility impairment, greatly influenced or significantly influenced your risk of food insecurity. Um, mm-hmm. So what we found, um, I'm a resident of Ontario, and Ontario was really at the, at the higher end of risk of food insecurity. And comparatively, uh, Newfoundland, Quebec, Alberta, and Saskatchewan had significantly lower rates of food insecurity uh, if you were a person with mobility impairment. Yeah. What about Indigenous communities? Because I've read a lot of research and heard a lot on them in the mm-hmm. news about how communities up north or Indigenous communities, you know, people in remote parts of Canada find it very challenging, even without having a disability thrown in the mix, to have access to mm-hmm. good quality, affordable food. How do those food insecurity issues play out for people with disabilities on First Nations reserves, for example? Did you ever have a chance to investigate that? 
Yes, that's a that's a very good question. And what all research in Canada has found is that uh, is that food insecurity in the north is very high. Um, there's mm-hmm. an organization that looks specifically at food insecurity in Canada and shows um, rates in especially Nunavut to be uh, with food insecurity rates as high as 57 percent. So, so we do know that food insecurity is really high among among Indigenous people. Um, so there is a bit of a, a data lock, uh, a lack in data, especially in national surveys that that don't collect data uh, in within First Nations communities, and that's the big lack in terms of being able to show because because we are sure there are these interactions between between being Indigenous and having a disability. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, but but it is something unfortunately we can't explore as much in the data. And my my research was specifically exploring uh, food insecurity within within Toronto. And there are uh, we did identify um, that ethnicity was a risk factor for food insecurity. So, so we expect those interactions if you are Black or Indigenous living in Canada and having a disability being as interacting to have a higher risk of food insecurity. Yeah, I suspect so. And I think it's one of those areas where, you know, we really do need more research and more investigation to shed light on some of these these interlocking systems of oppression and how it's affecting people's quality of life generally, but food security specifically. Let's turn to your research in Toronto. Really fascinating look at the situation right here in Toronto with, I'm sure, broader implications. You had a chance to work with amongst other places, uh, the Centre for Independent Living in Toronto. Tell us about some of your work with SILT and how people with disabilities were able to participate in your research. Oh, yes. Well, the Centre for Independent Living in Toronto was was so helpful. They were very supportive from the from the beginning of this research. Uh, as I mentioned, they, they noted there was important lack in data on food insecurity, but they were aware, based on their clients, that food insecurity was a major concern as well as uh, those food access barriers, uh, physical accessibility barriers, and and the barriers in food banks they specifically were interested in looking at. So so they were very instrumental in helping me. They they advised at the beginning on on the research design and how I would mm-hmm. conduct the research, which was, which was really invaluable, especially as an outsider and non disabled research researcher uh, to to work with the community uh, and they they helped with community outreach uh, allowing participation and also allowed me to use their space as an accessible space for those who wanted to conduct interviews there um, so their help was invaluable and and I did connect with other disability and food advocacy organizations in the community so some of them uh, helped also with with participant recru- recruitment which allowed me to to help recruit people across the city because it is so important when looking at accessibility to to try to get different representations across the city. Mm-hmm. You know, we can look at the numbers and parse the data, but I find it's really powerful to hear the stories. Tell mm-hmm. me a little bit about what people you spoke to over the course of your interviews were telling you about food security and food insecurity. What were their experiences? Mm-hmm. So... So what was very interesting was just how much income, and and for many people this is obvious, but just how much income influenced every aspect of people's food insecurity experiences. 
So income prevented people from accessing the foods they needed, but it also influenced different things like the type of housing that people could access, mm-hmm. um, which provided additional barriers to access food. So I can tell you a few stories of people living in very inaccessible housing because uh, they were relying on subsidized housing and couldn't get into more accessible spaces. So there was one woman who had a very inaccessible ramp at the entrance to her apartment. Uh, She called it the ramp from hell, which I use a lot as a visual because I think it's very illustrative. Um, And it's very steep. There's very little clearance between the bottom of the ramp and and the entrance to the door. Uh, And so she finds that during times of bad weather, she she really just can't go out because she's too afraid to use the ramp. And that really affects her food access experiences and being able to access the food she needs. So another really sad experience is uh, one participant described extreme food insecurity um, during times of an emergency. Like uh, I conducted some of the interviews shortly after an ice storm in Ontario that lasted a few mm-hmm. days. And uh, one one woman described how she's un- she was unable to access food those days and because she had low income, she couldn't afford things like being able to even order uh, takeout from a food delivery place. So it really just emphasizes that need for, for better income to help compensate for those emergencies and also to help people live in a space that, that supports them to access the food they need. My name is Joita Gupta, and with me is U of T researcher and PhD candidate Naomi Schwartz. Naomi, let's just spend a minute or two more talking about housing, because uh, in a previous life, I've worked a lot in tenancy rights and housing rights. And the biggest challenge that I could see was that people were spending far more than the, uh, the, the prescribed 30% of their you know, after-tax income on rent. That was what was really preventing people from spending on things like food or spending on things like even a metro pass. Are you saying that that is part of the problem or is that the entirety of the problem when it comes to food insecurity amongst people with disabilities? Oh, yes, I would definitely say it is a a major part of the problem. Housing expenses is was people's major expense and it is extremely inflexible. so people will often pay rent first and only rely like on additional income to afford their other needs. And food is unfortunately often seen as a very flexible need because people can reduce or, or change the ways they eat food, even with, though those changes often have health consequences. So housing, I, I would agree with you, is a major issue. I would say, though, that even the 30%, even paying at the 30%, threshold. Some were on the rent geared to income program and housing still made up a major expense nevertheless Mm -hmm. because those uh, incomes, especially uh, of the people I spoke to most were on ODSP and those incomes are just are just so low and even even with some housing subsidies is very difficult to afford the food people needed for a healthy life. So so it was housing as well as uh, those income supports. Uh, needing to support those changes. Now, in your paper, you write, having a mobility disability is commonly thought of to limit physical access to food sources. Now, you contend that this is a bit of an oversimplification. You'll have to sort of break that down for us. Why is it an oversimplification? Because it seems pretty straightforward to me. Yeah. Yeah. So, I would firstly point out that there is some variation in experience uh, mm. among people that I spoke to. 
So I, I wanted to point out that it's an oversimplification, not because people with disabilities don't experience barriers accessing food, but just because we have to recognize that the barriers, that the source of those barriers isn't uh, a mobility impairment or a disability itself, but it's also those, uh, those social, economic, and, and environmental factors that, that influence the way people can access food can access food. So whether somebody has access to proper transportation uh, influences whether people struggle with accessing food, whether people can economically afford to use things like taxis in a time of need or, or mm-hmm. food delivery if they're in need of it. Um, so it's very much limited by income. And, and also whether people have access to help or, or different care forms of care that could, mm-hmm. that could provide them access. So, so some variation I did see. Um, there were a few participants actually who used mobility scooters who noted that they're that they were very uh, able to access the foods they needed, and that their their scooter actually helped them a lot with the in the process of food shopping. Um, but the issues were when these mobility scooters encountered places uh, with these people in mobility scooters encountered places that weren't designed for access to their mobility scooters is where they had real barriers to access. So for example, if there were stores without entrances for them to get into or, or there were sidewalks that were unplowed or had barriers in the way, those were the real barriers to accessing food. So it would be an oversimplification to to say that people with mobility disabilities have difficulty accessing when that is not the experience for everyone. Just to sort of figure out the other portion of this is whether there are there is a case to be made for people with disabilities needing access to more uh, prepared food. It could be pre-cut ingredients or mm-hmm. maybe even just ordering out more because of the nature of their disability that cooking and food preparation is a challenge. Did mm-hmm. your research hint at this being uh, the reason why so many people with disabilities are food insecure? Well, it it definitely could contribute. I, I'm not sure if it was a major reason, but like I said, mm. the income is so important. And without that income, people don't have the options to get things. So, so one participant did mention like those pre-cut vegetables you can get at a store would be really helpful, but they're a lot more experienced than say buying potatoes or, or whatever you need uh, raw. So, so all those things do contribute to higher expenses for people with disabilities. And I would say to have the option to have prepared food, if that's what is desired, uh, is what is needed for those with a higher income. Others did enjoy the process of cooking or cooking from scratch. Mm-hmm. Um, and another aspect that we haven't talked about so much is having care or support to, mm-hmm. to cook those foods. So, so some people really would not prefer to have those, those prepared foods. Um, and, and one woman I spoke to actually had access to a program known as direct funding, which allowed her to, to do more cooking from scratch, which she said really supported her food security. Um, because she was able to buy more uh, less expensive ingredients, so mm. so those all those things um, factor in. But the important thing is to have options because everybody really has different desires and cooking skills uh, and nutritional choices and cultural backgrounds that that they wish to accommodate. You know, the thing is, before COVID, there were so many programs that I can think of just in the city of Toronto that provided support with 
cooking, with meal preparation. Uh, the Stop in Toronto is a really great resource of, uh, in terms of, you know, uh, providing affordable food. They do workshops. Uh, in fact, on this program, we had the co-founders of Elixir Kitchen, which does some food preparations for people living with cancer. And I could just go on. And yet after COVID, so many of these services and community supports have been forced to scale back or even shutter their, you know, their, their programs. Do you feel that, and you might be extrapolating a little bit here, but do you feel that that has led to food insecurity amongst people with disabilities during the pandemic? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I definitely think uh, this COVID-19 pandemic has had uh, very strong effects on the disability community. And some of that has been seen in research in places like the UK, uh, so a portion of that is higher expenses, um, but as well, there's there's less access to all these kind of care facilities and, and social supports that people relied on. So uh, in terms of those uh, those things like the STOP, those those programs, they were very important for helping to supplement food, but also for mm -hmm. people's ability to have social interactions in their in their day to day mm -hmm. lives. Um, so, so I think both of those are lacking because of the COVID-19 pandemic. So it really emphasizes the need for support for people with disabilities during this pandemic. One of the things that I hear a lot about just in my personal life is, well, if you're having trouble buying groceries, clip coupons or, you know, look for sales. Uh, why don't you, you know, shop uh, in bulk? There are so many ways in which you can save money. You're a researcher. You have the perspective of looking at systemic issues. What's wrong with that approach? Uh, aside from the obvious, which is that it kind of makes people who are already dealing with poverty responsible mm -hmm. for dealing with that poverty. What else is, is problematic about taking that line? Yeah, thanks for bringing that up because I I would hear some of those some of those responses or ideas about food shopping and as well I would hear um when when talking to people about this research is is can't can't you just use food delivery? So there there's so many reasons that people with disabilities or people with low income wouldn't be able to use those strategies. So I would again point out that some people do enjoy and do use things like couponing but it's not a solution at all to problems of food insecurity um, because these problems are systemic. And like I mentioned, people with disabilities, especially uh, without the income sources to access the food stores that they want or with proper transportation, often can't visit multiple stores and do things like comparison shopping, like comparing prices and getting the foods they want. So most people, especially if you're relying on the wheel trans system, want to get all your shopping done at once and so we'll choose we'll we'll choose stores more based on where they can get uh, all their needs met at once uh, and some of this is also based on savings like around transportation and using and how often you use wheeltrans so so people will go to stores not necessarily the ones that are the least expensive but the ones that that meet one's accessibility needs so so those things like couponing, people people don't often have time uh, to to you know meet all those needs, especially when they're um, when they're using wheeltrans and they're forced to do their food shopping within a set period of time. So there are multiple barriers that people I spoke to faced and using those those food saving strategies, and ultimately those strategies 
um, may help certain individuals, but but it's not uh, it's not going to improve a systemic inequality that we see across the population because the main issue is just that the incomes are too low. So if incomes are too low, what then needs to change? I would say a basic income support program that provides enough income across the population, but also does not have uh, those barriers to qualifying that a lot of those disability income support programs have, because we do know that people have uh, have disabilities but have difficulty applying for some of these programs or face other barriers like privacy concerns in applying. Uh, And so a basic income program would really go a long way to making sure people across the population have access to the foods they need and also can address some of those accessibility concerns that they face. It would give them more flexibility uh, in terms of their housing and in ability to make modifications within their home, as well as having different options in times of emergencies like different transportation sources, when things go wrong on their way to food stores, that people can make different uh, choices in how they can reach food stores uh, and and can access different needs of transportation, as well as having money for things uh, like um, emergencies and weather uh, that would provide them support in times of need. Naomi Schwartz, it's been great talking to you today. You've given us a lot of um, food for thought, as it were. Thanks a lot for being on the program. Thank you very much. That was Naomi Schwartz from the University of Toronto. Her PhD research looked at food insecurity for people with mobility disabilities. I hope you'll check out our conversation on any of your favorite podcast platforms. Such an important and long overdue conversation about people with disabilities facing food insecurity. If you remember my conversation earlier in the summer with Dennis Raphael about the social determinants of health, you'll remember that disability was flagged as one of the major determinants of poor health and, of course, income inequality and lack of access to nutritious food have long lasting and far-reaching consequences that I will probably pontificate about more on the show blog ami.ca forward slash on the pulse so please do head on over there I'd like to thank Naomi Schwartz for being on the program today the technical producer for the pulse is Nasreen Abdul-Majid Andy Frank is the manager for AMI audio Paula Janine is our technical supervisor thanks a lot for listening and have a wonderful rest of your day This was an AMI podcast. For more accessible media, visit AMI.ca. Hi, I'm Ramia Amuthan. Join me weekly for AMI Audiobook Review, the podcast that explores new titles, introduces us to famous narrators, and updates what's hot at the Center for Equitable Library Access. Download episodes of AMI Audiobook Review from your favorite podcast provider.